0: Hello, and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson.
1: And I'm William Powheida.
0: In our last podcast, we promised something for this podcast that is going to be a little bit different. We promised that we would be speaking with Kalani Nicole of Current Gallery and Transfer. That interview is going to happen in our next podcast. So in the meantime, we thought we would discuss Art Basel Miami, which came and went.
1: Yeah, I feel like I have a little bit of a Art Basel... Post Miami hangover probably has more to do with the holiday party I went to this weekend, but <laughs> also has a lot to do with the the abundance of news and headlines about the uh, art fairs and parties happening down in Miami, which uh, I did not attend this year.
0: And I did not either, so I feel like I have the opposite of whatever an art Basel hangover is. I feel rejuvenated.
1: Well, I spent a lot of probably too much time looking at Instagram feeds, uh, seeing. Maybe a few of my works reposted. Unfortunately, from all the reports I have, uh, I did not sell any works at Miami this year.
0: Yeah, it seemed a little slower than the reports that I was reading, too. Um, And AFC's former contributor, Michael Anthony Farley, was down there, and he told me that the classic indicators that things were slower and there were fewer people there, like the uh, gridlock traffic, was not an issue this year. And it wasn't last year either, so it seems like the last few years things have definitely slowed down a little bit.
1: Yeah, and on Twitter I asked, you know, what is the new version of, quote, we made great connections, uh, to which my art dealer, Magda Sawin, uh, replied, we were Instagrammed a lot.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well that's great too I guess yeah I
1: think I think in the uh, attention economy um, I picked up probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like 30 new Instagram followers which uh, unfortunately I can't pay the rent with
0: yeah that's too bad <laughs> I guess that one of the more notable headlines that we were talking about earlier in the preparation for this podcast was ArtNet: South Miami Beach is looking strong under its new leadership and of course the new leadership is uh, Kathleen DeBacker. Previously she had helmed the Armory Art Fair but the subhead for this particular article was highlights include an Instagram perfect photo booth which there's only one highlight noted and then in the entire article there's like three artworks that have been cited so um, this seemed like a real stretch to find anything to talk about even.
1: Yeah I saw that post and there seemed to be only three photos at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so not not exactly uh, you know a slideshow of highlights. My art dealer from Copenhagen uh, Morton Paulson said that you know it was definitely slower this year in terms of attendance potentially and then also sales.
0: Yeah I mean if, if you look at art news I don't think they had a slideshow for Pulse at all I don't know if they had any coverage I didn't see it, they may have but Andrew Russet did put together a slideshow from Nada of things he wished he could acquire all at reasonable prices like under 7k (laughs) Seven figures. Which yeah, it's just like. <laughs>
1: and and as usual, it seems like the feeding frenzy at NADA, uh, which occurs regularly every year, was once again happening. So that if you're selling artwork under ten thousand dollars, you probably did okay, and if you were selling things over five hundred thousand, you probably did okay. But uh, I think I saw a headline from uh, Charlotte Burns that just said uh, sales didn't go so well for the middle.
0: So it's that story again.
1: That story. <laughs> once again Um, well I think that's you know sort of uh, the the drumbeat of the art world and you can expect that story to continue to be told into 2018 and I think one one of my concerns is that the impact of Miami is not always immediate in best case scenario there's uh, follow-up sales which can happen and you know save a gallery from absolute disaster and the other side of it is what happens to a gallery if they've just lost anywhere from 20 to $50,000 or $100,000 on a, on a poorly attended uh, fair that didn't have any sales. Given the nature of uh, the kind of state of the art world in New York, for example, I just wonder if this is going to contribute to closures in 2018.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is the time when I think galleries typically make all their money a lot of the money that they're going to use that will sustain them, or they take a bath.
1: Yeah, and if I'm a canary in the coal mine, um, I would say the last three years I've done a significant number of sales at the art fairs, and right at the end of the fiscal year it was always helpful. Um, This year I can say that's not happened, and if that's the case for other galleries, I would be very concerned. But I have to be careful. I can't say my experience translates for everyone who is down in Miami
0: well perhaps on the bright side you'll have more expenses you can write off all right so other items of news I think we had a story well
1: before we leave Art Basel one thing that was notable this year I was able to um, experience a little bit of Art Basel Miami Beach proper um, through the conversation series which I'm not sure if this is unique to this year, but uh, Basel was streaming their conversations uh, live. Oh, yes, and that's right. if you missed out on most of them, like I did still, uh, they're all archived on YouTube. So you can listen to, I think it's upwards of, you know, probably 18 hours of, like, conversation. Um, some of the notable panels were the privatization of arts journalism with uh, Mary Louise Schumacher and uh, Sarah Douglas from art news uh, was, was it all,
0: only the two of them talking there was uh,
1: uh Ossian Ward was also part of that most of the conversations were between three and four people at most so they were quite intimate there was an art market uh talk with our friend Josh Baer uh leading that one I believe and one of the, the curious panels that I listened to was um uh, panel on natural disasters and sort of asking whose crisis is it with john paul rathbone and uh, isaac julian i'm gonna who
0: is name. okay so isaac julian is an artist right yes also and a then filmmaker.
1: Uh right and john paul was a artist who was doing uh, sort of large-scale public art projects uh, one of which was in miami that he you know are kind of like spectacles of environmental disaster in some way. Okay. Um, the the subtitle of the panel though is Whose Crisis Is It? Which um, is
0: immediately problematic, I think. It uh, is. And when I, we're talking I would about say a global
1: Yeah. Most of the panel discussion problem. between the two artists was well, I would say John Paul spent more time worrying about the material resources his own practices use and having a kind of crisis of whether or not it was sustainable to even continue this kind of way of working, Isaac Julian didn't express so much worry about his own practice. It, it was a sort of strange talk, I would say, uh, you know, in the least, to hear two artists in the middle, or the sort of belly of the beast, as it were, sort of talking about climate change and its impact in a city like Miami, which it was discussed, it's hard to ignore there when water is seeping up through the sewage systems and it's sort of a constant condition. But to have it being discussed in Basel, which is in the art fair, where it's really much more about sales and the kind of flow of global capital and wealth.
0: Well, and I think we're used to seeing these kinds of discussions that it just assemble five different collectors and they discuss what they collect and why or they you know maybe there's some advisors on a panel and it's just like what you should buy and why like these are the kinds of conversation series that i've grown accustomed to seeing at art fairs and with the exception of freeze which has a slightly better programming but usually not stuff that i'm super interested in that's what you get so this seems kind of problematic but somehow atypical for what What we normally see.
1: Yeah, and I would say it was an interesting conversation in the sense that, like, Isaac Julian was talking about one of his projects where he was shooting um, around melting glaciers and did have some questions about his own what it meant to kind of aesthetize basically natural disaster and to kind of formalize it. Um, So that that was part of the discussion. When sort of um, asked about the sustainability of their own practices, both artists struggled to find some way to kind of rationalize what they were doing, whether it was aesthetizing natural disaster or or just their, the way their projects may contribute to climate change in some small way. And at one point, somebody, um, I think the moderator of the panel, uh, Lars John, or I guess that's how you say his name, um, basically, you know, confronted uh, Isaac Julian and said, you know, your one of your responses sounds uh, effete, like just, you know, a kind of intellectual, aesthetic, formalized response to a pressing, you know, global uh, problem. And that, somebody, I think Rathbone, the other artist on the panel, kind of saved <laughs> Isaac Julian and responded for him, because <laughs> Isaac <laughs> Julian just had no <laughs> response. <laughs> he just kind of stared at the camera and uh, didn't have anything to say about that. So, they're kind of typified in some ways when you have to say, you know, how does art respond to a crisis? And oftentimes, well, not so well in a kind of active sense, but in a way in which it can spark dialogue or present an issue to a public, maybe that's what it's good for. But it really put both artists kind of on the defensive um, to have to kind of speak about climate change as a national disaster that. It's clearly affecting a lot of um, parts of the world. I mean, I've just, you know, we were sort of dealing with Miami and then also uh, watching the kind of crazy wildfires sweeping through LA, which just does not seem to be, or it's an increasingly common condition, but also still shockingly strange. It produced a lot of surreal images this week.
0: Well, I think this gets back to one of the themes of the show, which is the moral responsibility that artists have in their practice and, I think, arts professionals in general. How much should we expect from art? How much do we expect from artists? Is it okay that their practice may be detached from the political issues? And, you know, how do you navigate these? these problems.
1: Well I think that would be an interesting uh, maybe a a good segue into Kate Sutton's um, art form report on a recent conference held at the School of Visual Arts which was a kind of all-star curatorial uh, summit that Kate released basically a really scathing uh, report on art form. It was titled Once Upon a Time in the West and it was published on November 30th and the conference was called curatorial activism and the politics of shock and it, the conference featured 21 international powerhouses um, from serpentine co-director hans ulrich obrist to tenste kunsthal director maria lind and the curator of next year's 10th berlin biennial um, gabi nikobo um, i apologize if i've butchered um, Gabby's last name. That's
0: just par for the course here. We yes. should, we just accept that, and that's <laughs> fine. And we expect our audience to accept that too. Thank you I, very I much. I have
1: to accept my own uh, regional limitations. So I, I I read this. I saw this on Twitter. Uh, this report, somebody posted it, and I just I think my first reaction was to say, you know, come for the the reporting, but stay for the shade. I mean, there was so much shade thrown on the participants of this panel that it's worth kind of like unpacking. I know we've talked a little bit about this before, but um, this is just a kind of treasure trove of scathing commentary from Kate. And then also the curators in their own words kind of address varying degrees of complicity and maybe contributing to problems that go beyond complicity.
0: This gives curators a
1: terrible
0: reputation, like a terrible name. And, you know, I had just done a presentation in Kitchener and Waterloo about biennials, and one of the segments was curators, and it was attached to Documenta, which tends to be a headier show, and how sometimes in these headier shows, the curators can be- become the stars of this these biennials when they're meant to showcase the artists. And the words seemed to be so plentiful and so useless at the same time in the context of biennials. And here it was like all of that foofery was on display. And when you really kind of get behind what all these words mean, if it's even possible, a lot of times the ideas are just so backwards and ridiculous that you you can't even believe that somebody was peddling them in the first place. Like, For example, there's this guy, um, Clementine De List, the former director of Frankfurt's uh, Welkerten Museum or Museum of Non-Western Art.
1: Weltkulturen. Uh, there you go.
0: <laughs> so he ventured that deaccession, uh, deaccessioning as a means to circulate the souvenirs of colonialism, thus freed from... The impounded population of European faults. So basically, he's saying like, if only we could deaccession the artworks that the museum exists to take care of, we would free them into the hands of private collectors.
1: Yeah, I, it was funny. I mean, this the back and forth that Kate captures in this. You know, uh, Carolyn Christoph uh, Bekhargiev. Who we can refer to uh, as CCB, her you know sort of rock star curatorial acronym name.
0: The former curator yes. of the, of Documenta yeah, in she, 2013,
1: I believe. She responded to that statement by saying, you have a naive opinion of the market. You know, She says, if we're just deaccessioning, then all these goods will leave circulation and end up on the walls of some apartment in Dubai or Moscow.
0: Well, she's not really wrong about that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it it brings up one major problem: is that there is an enormous amount of art that is unseen, that just sits in storage and doesn't get out to the public. It doesn't actually enter circulation. Um, And you know, posing a a response to that is to put it back onto the market and sell it. That's not really a solution. It seems like it's just ending up
0: misunderstands the purpose of a museum. I think. I mean the whole purpose of a museum is to care for works that we deem important enough that they should belong to the public and make sure that they are available for the public to see because they contribute to our shared public knowledge. Yeah,
1: and I, I agree with that and I think that is the role of the museum. Then the challenge for the museum is how to get their archives on display and uh what kinds of art are coming out of, you know, storage for the public to see. It does I guess it doesn't address the fact, though, that a lot of art, as one of my colleagues used to say, is just on pause. It sort of exists in a liminal state between being seen and unseen. And so I, I don't necessarily see deaccessioning as a solution to that. It could just go into a different kind of storage. And for contemporary art in general, you know, it's like the art storage industry is just growing at a kind of massive clip of people having to store all this work in climate controlled spaces
0: you know it's funny i remember like this was very early on in my art career i had never written anything at this point and i was working for a gallery on the upper east side and we had sold this two paintings to this particular collector and he had a townhouse right beside the met that spanned i think at least half the street so he was enormously wealthy and when we went over there basically we want we were dropping off a painting but we were kind of there just to see you know how rich he was and like what kind of stuff he collected like that sort of thing and when I went in he had this Chagall that was the most beautiful Chagall I'd ever seen and it was at that moment that I realized that there was certainly so much work that was so incredible that like only the very very few people will see and it really made me a little bit sad cuz this was like the depth of these blues was so incredible just from a color perspective i'd just never seen anything as as beautiful as that from that particular artist but it still remains like one of my favorite paintings that i've seen and it's in a private residence ironically right across from the met
1: <laughs> yeah i mean you know i think even in in the context of kate's article I mean, what's brilliant about this article, and I recommend everyone, you know, stop what they're doing and and read it, is that uh, DeLise's statement about deaccessioning was in response to Nicholas Bourriaud, who sort of said, um, if, as Bourriaud claimed, an artwork quote only exists through the human gaze, then the million hoarded objects locked up in international free ports can only be thought of reified things and not art. And so, I mean, Kate's whole, all of the kind of curator's responses are sort of like she's stacking them up, you yeah. know, to kind of put them into direct contradiction. Because CCB, you know, sort of like follows up um, um, DeList by saying, you know, look, like Damien Hurst was uh, a kind of activist. Um, (laughs) You favorite. because he, quote, had, you know, uh, for short circuiting his own market from within, creating objects whose production costs far exceed their market value, then auctioning off his life's work, please, on the precipice of a global economic meltdown. Um, And she said significantly, these objects were sold to, quote, the bee people, but not the bee keepers. And this is where Kate's writing is just really on point and really fun and kind of scathing. She says... The delight this pun brought her was genuine. And I had just, you know, in general when I was reading this, I hadn't read anything on art form um, so sharp and so long that it just, it struck me. And I was just wondering maybe it has something to do with the conditions at art form right now that maybe Kate felt liberated to say what she really felt uh, about this panel because she goes on I mean, is it possible
0: that David Velasquez's presence is already being felt? He's yeah. the new editor there. so Maybe he gave um, license
1: perhaps. to say, you know, give us what you really think about this panel. Because she, just the quotes of what she picked to report from this conference strung together, get at a lot of the contradictions and paradoxes. I mean, one of the next uh, things that we both wanted to talk about was Antonia Majaka. Um, Antoni, is it Antonia yeah, Antonio Mijaca, um offered this kind of brilliant, and this is, let me just quote directly, um, offered a brilliant but bleak survey on the general shit show. Quote, we shouldn't be asking what is to be done, but rather, what is to be done about what? Drawing on philosopher Isabel Stenger's ecological approach, Mazzacca reckoned, we seem to think if we work locally, then somehow things will work out globally. But to quote Jody Dean, I personally don't think Goldman Sachs cares if you raise chickens.
0: Right. And we discussed that a little bit before the show. I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about what she means by Goldman Sachs not caring about if you raise chickens.
1: Well, I think, you know, we're talking about the kind of globalized society that we live in where Goldman Sachs is a kind of international financier of different you know, financing the debt, you know, basically, of other countries, uh, major infrastructural projects. I mean, they're working at an international level. And uh, this kind of, I think, this sense that if we um, can solve our own problems or just kind of think locally or act locally is going to solve problems, it doesn't address the kind of much larger um, problems of international finance that we're all kind of experiencing, whether it's like the Argentinian debt crisis or... Uh, I can't think of anything specific right at this very moment. On the same kind of logic of that, you know, we could look at sort of like Donald Trump sort of saying, let's take care of America first. Let's like pursue our own interests. Let's get out of this kind of global project. Uh, and I think that's a real downside of that kind of thinking, potentially, is to just try to opt out of like global problems. And you know Goldman Sachs is one example of the kind of financial uh, globalization but if we're talking about climate change or ecology that's not something that I think just local action can forestall or change you know it requires international commitments.
0: One of the questions I have is how does that apply to art because when we think about working locally there's tons of local artist communities but a lot of times what we're talking about is well how can we Work to elevate. Well, I'm not sure if "elevate" is even the right word. But how can we move? Can we build up from yeah, well, a local position? Right. Well,
1: that that seemed that would seem to kind of speak to the structure of biennials and uh, the way in which a lot of these curators operate. Right, which is to go to a region or a place. They don't start with the artists that are operating in that region or place. They often bring their artists right. with them. They come; they themselves come from other cultures. Like, you know, even this panel is sort of like the UN. I mean, there's such a range of um, curators represented from around the world that it is sort of international already, and that you know, there's been a lot of attempts. I mean, we could probably talk about lessons from Athens and Documenta in a way in which somebody is is operating globally and trying to think or act locally and the two systems don't sort of line up. I think there was a little bit of Well, I,
0: but I think there's like a lot of talk about how they do line up, especially like within the the market, right? Where like the whole strategy is because I think also biennials are not divorced from the market. So like the well, whole strategy is we we can maybe we start with these international artists but we are able to elevate these artists through contextualizing them with these bigger names right so this is how we we build up but pulling this back to like i personally don't think that goldman sachs cares if you raise chickens like who is goldman sachs is goldman sachs the museum the museum doesn't care about this little teeny artist who's doing very pure abstraction in their studio or whatever or I, I mean I don't know I'm just
1: yeah it's 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 interesting like you know if we substituted Art Basel Miami Beach you know do they really care about the local effects of climate change on Miami because part of right. my, my prediction is like Art Basel could leave Miami Beach when the when the conditions are no longer so favorable and conducive for partying on the beach if there is no beach if there is no functional infrastructure in Miami Art Basel will disappear and so they may not care you know, that if you are making art in Miami. So that's one way to think about it. I mean, I was also thinking a little bit about the fact that I think there's going to be a new Kansas City biennial that Dan Cameron is going to be curating. And I just saw you know, on Twitter uh, a local artist sort of decrying yet another biennial with a fairly well-known curator coming to town and bringing in artists of, let's say, international or national recognition to bolster or bring some attention to the Kansas City art scene. But the artist was just saying like none of our none of the artists who are here working are going to be the focal point of this biennial.
0: It's a fair complaint, but I would say that pretty much any biennial curator seems to take that tact, right? Like when I was at Kafka, the organization that sponsored my talk in Kitchener Waterloo, they organize a bi- like a local biennial for Kitchener Waterloo and one of the things that they really try to do is bring in international artists. Like, it's a, it's a strategy. Like, everybody that works at that organization, so, though, is I local. Have to,
1: I have to ask, yeah, like, the, the strategy... So, like, what is the... So, what is the strategy? I mean, m- my understanding of it is that if you... My understanding is it's basically trying to break uh, the regionalism of an, of an area by exposing those regional artists to a more international... Um, way of thinking and making and creating art and that, that sort of says that the local art making is somewhat limited or something in its thinking. It's either that, or those artists lack the uh, recognition or lack the, I don't know, you know, uh, name brand <laughs> or something that, that would sort of warrant their, uh, they the, do like the that though. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, they do, but I, I guess up. the, the fundamental question though is, For me is you know is regionalism just a kind of still a bad thing like that there are people just making artwork that doesn't warrant international attention um because it's mired in maybe a kind of local or um conservative you know way of kind of art making
0: well i don't know i mean i feel like a lot of times it's work that deserves exposure that hasn't received it because it's made by artists who don't live in new york so there's a
1: there's a what if I mean the what if would be what if you um, brought in Dan Cameron but he didn't bring the artists of international re- with, of international reputations and just worked with the local artists working in Kansas City that make up what I mean he's not a miracle the- worker though I mean like <laughs> this
0: is the thing like it's not like a single curator can transform the interests of art tourists yeah, just the- by their mere presence like you know, that's part of the problem is that people are not avid consumers of visual arts in the way that if you wanted to
1: build a sustainable local art scene and get the people of Kansas City involved in viewing the artists that are making work in the city um, that are making work in the region it it would be worth thinking about what it would mean to kind of focus on those artists and try to build up you know, instead of kind of this traveling circus that kind of plops in in various places around the globe, and I, I, you know, I pose it as just a counterpoint because it is the kind of what if for me is what would be the alternative to the kind of traveling system that we have that has that kind of international character to it.
0: I mean, trust me, I want, I definitely want whatever that what if answer is because I feel like there's far too much work that is really interesting that just never gets seen.
1: Well, so it's worth you know, bringing it back to Kate's article, she follows immediately uh, up on Majaka's talk. And she said, you know, and this is the way that Kate's doing this writing. It's sort of brilliant. She says, before Majaka's talk, the formidable Imgard Emil Hines kicked off the second session with a tirade against modernity, whose legacy she proclaimed was no less than, quote, a war against life. Declaring modernism inextricable from colonialism, she concluded, we have to destroy the standpoint from which modernity makes sense. Such a move would require not only, quote, radical imagination, but, quote, an Orientalism of the Anthropocene, a concept certainly worth rolling around a bit more. So
0: what does Anthropocene mean?
1: It is the, <laughs> it's, it's a geological time period that there's a lot of debate about when it starts but basically it's when did humankind start to influence our natural environment when did our activity and presence in the world change our climate and so there's a lot of sort of debate again of when the anthropocene begins but it's basically our our period of when we started to change the climate
0: so, what does an orientalism of the Anthropocene mean? Uh, I think Sorry to ask a dumb question, but <laughs> no. Well,
1: the explain me on this. This is that the Orientalism for me is an orientation, a kind of viewpoint, and probably orienting ourselves to understand what the Anthropocene is, when it began, and situating ourselves relative to it and its effects. So, right now, like you know, Trump is in complete denial of the Anthropocene. So he's just probably doesn't know what the term is, is, doesn't think climate change exists or is real. And that perhaps even just having that talk, natural disasters at Art Basel is an attempt by the art world to start to orient itself uh, to the problem, to kind of make itself aware of it. Uh, that's a, you know An Orientalism of the Anthropocene is certainly a curatorial uh, phrase that Yeah, I'm still help. actually
0: a little confused about this. Orientalism of the Anthropocene means a kind of shifting our viewpoint so that we have a better understanding of when our actions started to affect the environment.
1: And also the attitudes, the kind of cultural perspectives around it. I mean, when I think of Orientalism... Around
0: it being the the environment or around...
1: Also an understanding of what it means to... I mean, the way that I understand Orientalism in general is through uh, Edward Said's critique of Orientalism and its kind of post-colonial thinking that Western society defines itself through its other in the East. But that is also really speaks to a kind of cultural perspective and orientation, how we view things in a sort of more general way. So that's how I'm sort of reading it. I I can't imagine that Emanhals is asking us to romanticize the Anthropocene in some way. For me, it seems to be a call to sort of think critically about our relationship to climate change.
0: I guess I'm, I'm just wondering what the hell that has to do with modernism, though, like, and colonialism. I can't.
1: So, well, think about it like this. Connect
0: all these Industrialization.
1: Together. Yes, okay. You know, all the things that are sort of like that fueled modernism, certainly industrialization in the West, this idea of kind of standardization, making things all the same everywhere those kind of things that become more universal, which are not local, <laughs> necessary. I, when I think of modernism, I think of it banishing regionalism. I think of it getting rid of the local. You've got to lose your local accent. you got to, you know, if you're Jackson Pollock, you've got to shed Thomas Hart-Penton. You've got to move towards our universal languages of abstraction. And this is what modernism is. And it certainly privileges the form of a thing over its content, even its political content or its social content. And that is the kind of like viewpoint, I think, that she sort of, I mean, there's a lot of things here, a war against life, that modernism is inextricable uh, from colonialism. So this is a kind of standpoint that Emil Hines is saying that we've got to destroy. And that's a pretty radical position to take.
0: I'm fundamentally against it. And this goes back to one of the things that one of the opinions I expressed in a previous podcast, which is that modernism at least retain some sense of hope and optimism because you, the modernist era, like people were excited about the future, hopeful about it, they they were optimistic about our options. I feel like we don't have any of that left, except sometimes in the tech industry. But, and we need at least some of that. Well, it I, it can't I would agree all with be you. gloom and doom. No, I
1: mean, I would agree with you. I mean, TJ T. Clark in his book, uh, Farewell to an Idea, writes about modernism as a project that's distinct from modernity. He's claiming that that's the era in which we still live, which would be marked by industrialization and disciplinary thought and kind of creating these kind of universals that lead to, you know, our kind of global, globalized, you know, world and economy. But Lark made the distinction that modernism was an aesthetic project. And it worked, it worked to kind of buttress uh, us in culture uh, against just capitalism our main economic driver and that Clark is he calls the book farewell to an idea because it's something there's a a sadness to losing that project I would say Mm -hmm. Kim Stanley Robinson the science fiction author has said that you know we need to in some ways replace that with science or utopian projects um, they don't have to be modern, modernist projects. They could be postmodern projects. They could be something that we don't have a term for yet. But I would say that those things that do embrace the local, that can embrace the regional, that can allow for dialects and accents and specificity would be really important. So I do think that's something that's, you know, that modernism proposes in its kind of universal project is that it, it excluded a lot of people. And that we've seen a lot of, I think, revision in art, specifically through histories of modernism, to start to talk about modernisms that happened in South America, Latin America, um, Africa, outside of just our kind of Western um, colonial narrative. And that, that, I think, is the sort of point of critique that is informing a lot of kind of um, de- decolonize this place or kind of decolonial movements. And that modernism is wrapped up in in our history of art and uh, worth, I think, talking about.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, sure. And I mean, I don't want to suggest that I'm against like diversity or being more inclusive or local artists or local local anything. I think the uh, I think the point I was just trying to make was that. Uh, destroying the whole goddamn thing doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm, you know, there's a lot worth preserving and there's also a lot of stories. Um, and when I say stories, there's a lot of artists that uh, made modernist artwork that were not included in our kind of MoMA version of the yeah, story. Yeah, absolutely. Which MoMA is very guilty of trying to strip the politics off of it. Just always think about Yevgeny Fieks's, um communist tour of MoMA where he gives you the kind of political story that's been sort of whitewashed for the sake of a formal discussion of the work, the fact that Picasso was a card-carrying communist. I mean, these are things that kind of get left out when you put it into just a high modern narrative framework. I mean, the radical position is we must destroy this standpoint. But another radical position is we need to expand the history so that it's more accurate.
0: Just to add to your um, anecdote about uh, Moma with another anecdote. I <laughs> was there recently this uh, this week to look at the Louise uh, Bourgeois show and uh, the Max Ernest show and I was with a friend who had gone through the entire museum and she said you know it looks to me like on every floor they have strategically included a woman in the uh, collection that's on view and I thought that was an interesting observation. As
1: well there's this strategic placement, and then there's the fact that Louise Bourgeois is getting, you know, has a major show. I mean, some of it is going to be structural, and, I mean, in a time of such, like, economic precarity, I mean, one area in which we do have some agency in the arts is the cultural diversity, the cultural representation. Like, that can be controlled in some ways. So I do see that as being a response to the pressure um, that is being exerted on so-called progressive institutions to kind of reflect their ideals.
0: I think it's worth noting that board members and and donors of the museum are not the ones who have the sole control over what gets acquired. A lot of the uh, donations that get made don't have um, sort of curatorial controls attached to it, so basically the curators get the money and they choose what they're gonna put into the collection, which I think is often, but not always the case, um, sort of a nice thing for the institution Mm -hmm. um, because I often trust the experts on this. Although, you know, of course it cuts both ways because I think a lot of times the donors are very invested in art and it's not like they all have bad ideas. Some of them have great ideas and their input into what goes into the collection is great. So,
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, Kate's article is just like the article that just keeps, it's like the gift that keeps on giving as like a treasure trove of problems. Like right after the discussion of Orientalism of the Anthropocene, Elena Filipovic, uh, you know, sort of comes up to talk and recounts a fundraising dinner. And this is worth just sort of quoting filipovich recounted a fundraising dinner this summer in basel when a boorish german museum director arrived unannounced sans donations only to wriggle his finger playfully between the buttons of her blouse quote this man came to my dinner on my night took a seat he hadn't earned at my table this wasn't about seduction this was about power you know and somebody said that they need to name the director but this person was not discussed but, you know, we're seeing in the news, like, Jens Hoffman has now been sort of forced out or resigned pretty much every position he has. Right, the, the main artwork.
0: one being the Jewish Museum. He was forced out of that.
1: Yeah, and I'm not saying that this was... as yeah, a clearly, He was a curator. Yeah, Jens Hoffman. But it just gets into the kind of, like, stacked power dynamics of how these institutions work, who operates them. And so, I mean, this, this thing is just crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, we could spend pretty much the rest of the podcast on that, but maybe it's worth moving on because we do have a bunch of shows that we wanted to discuss.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I would just, the, the last line from this that's <laughs> worth reading, um, we could close it off by saying this is, quote, there was a lot to say about that, moderator, moderator Adrian Edwards interjected, her voice spreading smoothly like butter across toast, except instead of warm, melty butter, think cold, compressed rage.
0: That was so well written and it actually reminded me of the um Uma Thurman compressed rage that she had expressed when asked about the Weinstein scandal because obviously something had happened to her and mm-hmm. she was just like I will talk when I am ready. Yeah. And she was furious.
1: Well, and I think, you know, putting people on the spot to name accusers to uh speak to those things um, publicly is not always in the best interest of the person speaking. Uma's, you know, saying I'll, I'll speak when I'm ready is probably also a, a reasonable way to proceed in that situation instead of a kind of gotcha moment on a panel. Yeah, absolutely. So in in terms of the shows, I went to the Lower East Side this weekend, and one of the shows that I think is sort of bears discussion or bears on our discussion of kind of modernism might be the show at Proxy Co. Called Talon Rouge, and it was six Mexican artists revisit Jose Juan Tablada and his New York circle,
0: and that's on through February 18th. Yeah, so, so anybody in New York um, who's gonna who's gonna be here within the next two months has plenty of time to see it.
1: Yeah, so this show um, was surprising on a num- number of levels for me. One, I had not been to Proxico before. I don't know if it's a new gallery or I've just missed it on my um, walks in the Lower East Side. It's
0: right beside Rachel Offner for those who are sort of familiar with the Lower East Side. I can't tell if I've been there before. I have definitely been in that space before, but I don't know if Proxy has always been there.
1: Yeah, so it was basically a new gallery to me, and um, I am not familiar with the work of José Juan Tablada or his New York Circle. And when I looked at the press release for the show, I noticed it was curated by a Mexican curator, Danielle Garza, and um, I actually had the pleasure of meeting Danielle in Mexico City a couple of years ago and saw a show he curated at El Chopo, which is a university museum uh, in Mexico City. And it was a really great show of a lot of young Mexican artists. and. Uh, he sat down and spoke with me for quite a while about the kind of art scene in Mexico and brought, um, I thought, a kind of necessary institutional perspective. So it was a real pleasure to see the show, which I think does speak to the history of modernist art practices that sort of fallen outside of our kind of Western narrative of what modern art is and who practiced it, where it was practiced, and its connection to other cultures and histories that go beyond, let's say, Picasso and African masks?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was really interesting to me about this show was just sort of the sheer breadth of it. So, you know, the works span from like 150 BC to the present day, which also is something that you don't usually see in a commercial gallery setting, much less a museum setting. Mm-hmm within that context that it was also interesting to see that there was a real kind of cohesion to the work so you know nothing looked out of place which was interesting to me because th- with that kind of time span you would think that some things would look very distinct from others and they all seemed to be kind of informing each other but there was like a huge range too like there's geometric abstraction figurative sculpture there's like heim steinbach type work um There was a Miguel Carver... okay you're better at this than I am William... (laughs) how do you say that? I would say I mean it looks like
1: Miguel uh, Corvarubius. Yes thank you very much
0: that it sounds much better than what I tried to say. So he had done some like figurative gouache work and that was in the 1930s and these things they had a kind of figurative Look of something that might have been rendered around that time they looked of their time, which is to say that the um, the features were I don't know if the word is car- they weren't cartoony, but they were like there was a very smooth super line, super highly stylized. Yeah, I would say. stylized and a smooth line was part of uh, what made them unique. And Fabiola Torres Alzaga made drawings that looked Sort of like they could have been done by Miguel, um, but he had done these were recent drawings done in 2017.
1: 2017
0: so, yeah. and these were like pencil drawings. So, I thought the relationship between these two two works was kind of interesting. Yeah. And they were paired well, it really felt together. Yes. And I, the one thing I, w- sorry to interrupt, but the one thing I wanted to add about that is that I think in like a show of all contemporary artists that kind of pairing would be really detrimental right because you don't want two artists that look so similar that you can't tell the difference between who did what because it it, i i feel like it kind of connotes a a certain kind of (laughs) zombieism but here it looked like there was just a you know there was a relationship
1: that's what I really appreciated about the show is there what the work you know is in dialogue. Like there's an Olmec jade mask from you know 1100 to 500 BC that's in conversation with Edgar or or Leonetta's shelf pieces. That yeah I'm looking at those through the lens of Haim Steinbach as well as uh, you know maybe Jose Juan Tablada's influence. Who by the way Jose Juan Tablada is not represented in the show at all which is sort of part of the brilliance of the show, I think, is that I'm getting a sense of this artist's influence through artists making work in 2017, but also going all the way back to to looking at pre columbian artifacts in Mexico that are influencing the production of aesthetics today. And that this does kind of push back against this kind of modernist idea that abstraction was invented in like the 1900s or something, and that uh, there's this progress where we can look at a show like this and push back against that and think about a much longer and richer history of aesthetic development and how they operate in dialogue over time.
0: Yeah and also I think it pushes back against the narrative of like the individual artist who holds up in a closet and doesn't come out for several years and just like produces this work of genius completely detached from any kind of historical oh, context. The
1: show proves that that you know, um, you know, at worst, a lie. And in most <laughs> right. cases, just, you know, trying to, to make everything the product of the individual uh, genius um, mind. So, you know, I do think, I, for what it's worth, there are any museum people listening. I think Danielle's show would be better served <laughs> to some degree in a larger institution. And this is really a sketch for... An institutional show done in a commercial gallery in the Lower East Side. Yeah, absolutely. But in, in speaking of abstraction, I know we both um, saw uh, the show at the Whole Gallery.
0: Yeah, Johnny Abrams, what was it called? Thranati?
1: Thranati. Thranati. Uh, the term, which, which uh, according to, to Google means a lament.
0: Alright. So that shows up through December thirty first, just to give you a sense of what this uh, space looks like. White floors, white walls. The Bright white white lights. Yes. It's the most cubey of white cubes you can imagine. Set their floor gives a little so bit. So I always wanna too. Yeah, I
1: always <laughs> just wanna like just do a Kickstarter to pay for new floors for the whole.
0: <laughs> I think they just need a mop, like <laughs>
1: It <laughs> needs structural support.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, gallery aside, there are several large-scale paintings in there. Um, many of these canvases are shaped. They really very closely resemble Ellsworth Kelly's work. So imagine shapes um, sort of close to each other. They all kind of relate to each other. Often they're monochromes, so stacked white paintings. A banana,
1: um, a rectangle, and something else slightly yeah. oddly shaped.
0: Exactly, lots of like semicircles, or the start of a semicircle type shape. When they are in a single color, often they are uh, painted, but not so slickly that you can't see the brush marks. And sometimes it looks like it's been made with crayons. I would yeah, say. Yeah, that there were
1: ones that looked like oil pastel on canvas. Yeah, those Scribbly. looked.
0: Uh, a little less successful to me, but it's a weird thing to say in a show that I walked in and I thought, "God, this work would do terribly at an art fair. It needs to be in a gallery because it's so fucking boring." And <laughs> like, yeah. there's there's I... just not a lot. You really need a salesperson there and an entire context to support it.
1: Well, uh, I looked at it, and when I saw the show, I just thought, how many, how many ways can you just use this one, you know, shape or form again and again? Because many of the large-scale oil paintings or paintings on canvas were the compacted kind of rectangles that had slight variations in canters, so that there's little bits of you know white space between solid red shapes. And I mean, it, it was a show that seemed to kind of reference a kind of high modernism, but. Uh, In 2017, I'm wondering, why does this even exist? What's the point of this, you know, these kind of minor variations that create not terribly complicated spatial relationships? You know, for me, they looked like things that would make perfect sense in a corporate lobby, a place where you really don't want anyone to talk about anything.
0: It's true. I mean, I have to admit my own biases. If I were to see similar work at a smaller scale in say transmitter, I would probably be like, "Oh, that's okay." But <laughs> it would just it would be just as bad. But yeah. one of the questions that I had going into that show too was just like, "Okay, well this guy, he's obviously making very derivative work. He's not the first artist to do this. What is it that that made the whole show him? Like what
1: so I, I would refer uh, to the press release where uh, it says, "quote Abrams differs from other hard-edged abstractors in that the work expresses both rhyme and meter through repetitions and subtle interactions between the painted forms." So, you know, if you're going to make the case of what makes this this artist, I mean, it's it's resting on some pretty thin material. I mean, it's kind of referring to structures of poetry, you know, rhyme and meter. This makes me mad just hearing it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's not why they chose this person, or maybe it is, but
1: like, it just seems like somebody's grasping for straws. So this is probably, again, like why the show is so sort of bad. Quote, aspects of each series call to mind the explorations of early abstract and minimalist artists. The formula-based sketching in of the multi-panel pieces has aspects of a silhouette drawing, wall drawing. The simple white-shaped panel pieces evoke a desaturated Ellsworth Kelly, while the rectangular black stack oil paintings conjure works on paper by sculptor Richard Serra. So you know, it at least goes it's honest. On. It like quotes, that part is honest. Referencing Anish Kapoor, Eve's uh, Klein, Tato Ando's concrete slabs. Now. The difference between this show and the show at Proxyco is that Proxyco is putting all of the works in conversations with one another, and like you know Olmec heads, it's putting these things together in a way where you can kind of have that actual dialogue. And in the Holes case, we've got you know the one singular artist presented as if they are advancing aesthetic and intellectual uh, you know innovations of this line of artists going back to Yves Klein or something uh, that that reminds
0: me of like this ridiculous argument that I read in some wall text for that terrible David Bowie is show <laughs> that I that is coming to the uh, Brooklyn Museum and it's making me very fearful um, but there's like a little bit of text in that uh, where they're talking about how his individual genius in the 19... 19- like 60s bordering on on 70s made him very interested in costume and like that's how he as a single artist pioneered this huge cultural change and it's just like he didn't come out of nowhere he wasn't the only one wearing costumes like this (laughs) is a complete myth that you're building
1: well yeah and i mean i think this is all myth building and then here's maybe the um the the insight that changes everything for us Quote, what makes this exhibition more than a Greatest Hits remix is the way the artist approaches his subject matter. The red oil paintings are inspired by the specific red of plastic solo cups, the curved forms drawn from head and shoulders shampoo and Kikkoman soy sauce bottles. Many of the compositions derive from the forms suggested by his detailed line paintings of the past foot, four- whatever. Who cares? Yeah. Basically, if there had just been one red Solo cup, you know, presented on a little pedestal or a head and shoulders bottle, that might be part of the dialogue of the show. But reading about it in the press release, uh, you know, in the sort of like last paragraph is probably not going to happen for most people. I mean,
0: honestly, it's fine that they hid that. Like if I were to see a red cup as like a color marker. (laughs) It'd (laughs) it'd It'd be more honest, but it would be like, it would be showing it as you know, as dumb as it really is
1: <laughs> it, it's yeah, the red plastic solo cup it uh it is a major source of inspiration, <laughs> I think i'd rather see uh there's a young artist Kyle Patrasik, who actually uses the uh plastic solo cups to make sculpture, so
0: yeah, those are really great yeah, they're
1: fun um, <laughs> so uh you know, maybe uh I felt like after I saw that show, one of the next shows I saw that I thought was a little bit felt like um, an antidote in some way to that, was the uh, two shows at Rachel Ofner.
0: Those two shows, there's one uh, by Molly Zuckerberg Hartung, and that's uh, in the downstairs space, and it's called Learning Artist. And then there is a show in the upstairs called Miriam Hosini, or or by Miriam Hosini, and that show is called Of Strangers and Parrots. So the downstairs work, Molly Zuckerman, uh, Hartung, like that work, very fabric-based. They were discrete works, although the uh, the fabric may like extend the the length of a wall, um, and they it looked like quilted material, although um, not in a patterny kind of way, but kind of patched together. Yeah. And uh, one of the interesting things that I thought about uh, this particular show is at just how much of the wall space it used. Because in the uh, atrium space that Rachel Uffner has, they, um, she has these incredibly high ceilings. And if you were to look up, there was just this like long strip of fabric that took up the bulk of one wall just at the very top. Somehow, that work looked like it belonged there, and it was uh the The piece was just a sort of a darkened material with um what looked like painted imprints on top of it, so they were kind of circular it It almost looked like she painted the bottom of a pan or something and then uh, used it as a a kind of stamp um, and then there was a kind of painted transparent layer over top of it. So that was uh, some of that work. And then there was sticks, for lack of a better word, that had sort of been assembled into these, like, I, they look like kind of tribal shapes, I would say. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think there's, listening to how you're talking about it and also how the um, the, the title of the show is called Learning Artist. And when you walk into the uh, entryway of the, the gallery, which is a very long, narrow hallway, on the right side, there's just a kind of, like, collection of kind of smaller scale drawings and sculptures things are sort of collected in a way that kind of speak to this idea that you know the artist isn't quite sure exactly uh, what's going on like there's an attempt at kind of like trying to solve a a question or an answer and it's it's really even in the, the press release it says what does the curve have to do with form isn't the curve a line it's not exactly a form and she says, I'm still trying to understand the formal with a capital F. I get tangled between formalism, formality, and formlessness. And you know, you could go on with her statement, but I really feel that, that the show is very exploratory. And it's sort of generous in that sense that the exploration is shared with us through all these kind of different ways of working. And that's where I felt like this was the opposite of Threnody, you know, Johnny Abrams' show, which sort of presents itself as sort of like resolved mastery of the solo cup line and the head and shoulders, you know, curve in a way that was so cold and just like removed from anything that I would think of as um, experimental and that so, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of all of Molly's resolutions and what she comes up with, but it just, I felt like I was actually in a, in a place where somebody was trying to figure something out, that there was still a space for experimentation
0: yeah, I mean, I thought there was a lot of material expor- mm-hmm. exploration. I guess in terms of like the the sewing and uh, uh, assemblage, the thing that seemed like sort of experimental to me. There, in the center of the space, there's this like weird kind of cone type shape, and there's uh, a small bit of text that is written, and this small banner that runs over top of these figures. Uh, that she's created, and it says something like the uh, surprising violence in the sky. Mm -hmm. And then around this, though, there's like all these wires that it, it looks just like aluminum wire or something that's been manipulated. To me, I just kind of read that as something that represented like telephone wire or communication of some sort. All of these weird objects, the mobiles, they began to kind of create space that felt somehow connected. And, you know, I, I guess I'm not really sure where the show goes. I, I don't think you're meant to draw a specific narrative out of it. Mm-hmm. There was just enough there visually that I was interested the whole time. It looked like sh- she was having a good time.
1: Yeah, and it reminded me, though, a lot of the MFA shows. I've seen it barred. <laughs> not yeah. that I've seen that many, but there is a kind of, um, I don't know, a kind of spiritual aspiration to the work or something that's a little bit more holistic that's trying to bring in its own questions into the production of the work. And it does avoid any kind of specific, you know, it's not trying to make a very specific statement in any way. But I guess at a certain point, you know, I, I don't know how much material play I really need to see. Which, there was that show, and then upstairs, Mariam Hoseni's, uh Of Strangers and Parrots, I thought was like a, like a totally just changed the tone that it sort of exists somewhere in between Johnny Abrams, you know, absolute kind of formalism, and then the kind of uh, formal play of space and line and architecture of Molly, but in a sort of maybe a more resolved way for me. That, that i I found quite you know sort of satisfying in a way, they were a series of kind of small uh, canvases, often square that were painted onto the wall and sort of expend, extending them into the architecture of the space and she 's an artist from Iran, and uh you know the kind of there's a, a sort of historical figures referenced in these spaces that are also sort of oddly contemporary with what appear to be kind of icons floating uh, in the same space. And there were a couple of them that you know I thought, well, they, they just really worked. Um, I don't have a lot to say specifically about it, other than that it just was a really nice kind of shift from um, something that was incredibly sort of playful and open-ended, and then the really rigid stuff that I'd seen at the whole. So uh, I, I found myself spending more time with um, Mariam's paintings upstairs.
0: I mean, I think formally they're a little... I don't know if they're necessarily more resolved. I think one of the things that I really liked about, although I guess that's technically the word for it, one of the things I really enjoyed about the the show downstairs was that there was a kind of unfinished quality to it that did not seem sloppy or lazy.
1: Well, that would be the provisional, right? Like an artist who's working well with unresolved aspects of their work whether it's provisional painting or kind of you know, Sharon Butler's new casualism, I certainly can appreciate that, but I'm also I've seen quite a bit of it, you know.
0: Yeah, I I just think this is a better version of that. And perhaps this is gonna sound really lame, but perhaps that's just because there's light bulbs in it <laughs> and like I kind of feel like <laughs> to get electricity working just takes a kind of level of skill that Makes it a little less provisional to me, um, but those the works upstairs were they just seem very gallery friendly, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Like they're very resolved, so like there's there's nothing provisional about them. There, no, as at all. as you said, they're like inspired by architecture. They're the figuration is is abstracted. There's elements of repetition within it. They're beautifully rendered. There's uh, a kind of paint that extends. To, uh, the from, yeah. to the floor from the paintings, and that and that one of the nice things about that is that that paint is it's always a, a solid color, but sometimes you'll see like a a window painted in there, and so there's a relationship between the other paintings as well. Which I, I, you know, I'm not sure how relevant this is, but I couldn't, I really can't imagine just buying one painting. It seems like you would have to have at least two.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know.
0: <laughs> Um, I wouldn't want just one on my wall because they look so much better when there's uh, something to play off. Actually
1: of. if I had one of these paintings I would probably position it near a sculpture on a pedestal which they seem to kind of simultaneously be. You yeah know, they, kind of, they mimic that the shape. The illusion yeah, goes into kind of a pedestal shape and putting the painting on a pedestal which you know is like there's a slight humor uh, in that work. I just I I
0: think it gets a little,
1: I, I don't know, like matchy-matchy when you
0: yeah. when we talk about it that way, which I don't love. There, there also is not a hell of a lot of way around that.
1: No. And on in terms of the other sort of painting shows or drawing shows that I passed through, this one was memorable in a way. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, and again, it also felt like a little bit of a break between these kind of two... I would say polar opposite ways of sort of addressing um, abstraction in 2017, you know, Molly downstairs, much more provisional, um, a range of materials working with far more than just the limitations of like the shaped edge of a shaped canvas, but really working in the round. And then this, you know, sort of existing with some aspects of hard edge abstraction, addressing architecture, and also having a kind of cultural specificity, even though it's like, I don't quite know exactly where these figures are from. They reference Iranian figuration from some period. I don't quite know where the figures come from historically, but I don't necessarily know, I don't think I need to. And uh, from what I read in the press release, it it's, um, just sort of references the body and a kind of historical body and figures, but nothing sort of really culturally specific um, mm-hmm. that would add to the kind of interpretation of them. That said, you know, I mean, it's, it's a pretty modest show. There's no giant large-scale canvases or huge shaped things, uh, which I also appreciated.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that is that is a nice thing. Well, anyway, I think maybe this is a good time to uh, wrap up the show. Yeah. So look forward to us in the coming weeks because we'll have an interview with Kalani Nicole about The Current, which is a new gallery, which I think is described as a distributed gallery. Uh, So we'll learn what that means.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of galleries are going to be thinking about what it means to become uh, a distributed (laughs) gallery uh, in the near future. And instead of thinking about it in terms of gloom and doom, how are galleries going to continue to support and show artists if they are not so much about one physical space?
0: All right, look forward to good things coming up later.